1: I could stay here forever.
0: Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today.
1: Welcome to the Cynica Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China produced in partnership with Sup China. Subscribe to SubChina's daily, newly designed China Access Newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our website at subchina.com. We've got reported stories, essays and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, From the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region, to China's travails as it wrestles with a surging wave of COVID-19. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Since the Russian invasion of Ukraine on February 24th of this year, we've talked quite a bit on this show about Chinese public opinion, but thus far, we've mostly had to rely on anecdotal evidence, on the intuitions or the general sense that various scholars and pundits have from their social media feeds or from conversations they've had with their interlocutors, be they from China or from Russia or elsewhere, uh, and what, what they can infer from patterns of censorship, for example, in China. This week on Seneca, we'll be taking a look at some of the actual public opinion research and not just on Chinese attitudes toward the war, but also on attitudes among people in China, the U.S. and Russia toward one another and more. Joining me to discuss is Yahweh Liu, Liu Yahweh, the senior advisor on China at the Carter Center in Atlanta. Yahweh, welcome back to Seneca.
2: Thanks. Uh, thank you for inviting me back uh, to talk about this important issue.
1: Well, it's wonderful to have you. Listeners may recall that we had Yahweh on, in, uh, I think it was November of last year, to talk about some survey research that the Carter Center had commissioned through REWI, a Toronto-based survey research outfit that's using really innovative methods to to acquire their data. Uh, well, they have teamed up with REWI again on a new batch of research. Uh, This time, I've also asked Danielle Goldfarb, who is head of global research at REWI, to come onto the show and talk about the work that they did with the Carter Center, but also about other highly relevant survey data that they've done recently. Danielle joins us from Toronto. Danielle, welcome to Seneca.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: I'm delighted that you could be here. Uh, Yahweh, let me start with you and ask why does public opinion even matter in an authoritarian country where you know there isn't this mechanism, the ballot box, by, by which popular opinion can be you know made manifest in in actual policy? Uh, why is it important that we understand how ordinary Chinese people think about something like the war in Ukraine?
2: Well, it matters uh, in the sense that you know they still claim uh, their system is people's democracy, right? Uh, mm-hmm. They like to say everything the government does is in accordance with the will of the people. But you also oftentimes hear Chinese diplomats making the announcement that even though we don't do poll, but you know there is public opinion in China, and that public opinion sometimes makes it very hard to make decisions. Uh, right. So in that context, uh, it, it is also uh, very important. Social media in China has certainly provided a radar screen on how vibrant that public opinion is, although that public opinion, to a large extent, can be manipulated by the by the censorship regime uh, in China.
1: Indeed, indeed. And what did you set out to find with this latest set of questions? What were the top level questions that you had uh, for Riwi uh, in this in this set of of research?
2: So we. It was a quick decision to conduct this survey because uh, we initially published uh, the op-ed by Professor Hu Wei from Shanghai. Uh, You know, he strongly disagreed with the government position. So that made us think, you know, is Hu Wei's opposition to the government position a reflection of the popular viewpoint of of the war? So, you know, obviously Hu Wei is a scholar. He's not even an international relationship scholar. He's really he's known for introducing the concept of intro party democratization. So that prompted us uh, to do it. So the most important question we want to ask, and which is the question really will help us to ask, is uh, what do you think China's support for uh, Russia's war in Ukraine is in the interest uh, of China's national security?
1: So that was the top question that you asked. And there were another couple that you you decided to tack on, which were also really, really interesting.
2: Right. The other question we ask is, have you seen the accusation that Americans are operating biolabs in Ukraine? If you have seen it, do you believe it is accurate? If you have not seen it, do you believe it is accurate? So that's the second question we ask those that are being polled.
1: Yeah, yeah, fascinating. I think we should just take a quick aside here and talk a little bit about uh the the article that you referenced by Huei, uh, because this was something that, that got the Carter Center and the US China Perception Monitor sort of a bit of attention, not of the the necessarily the favorable kind. In fact, your website was blocked after you published a translation of this. So Huei is vice chairman of the public policy research center of the uh, counselor's office of the state council. So he's no small fry. I mean, he's, he's somebody quite serious. Um, what you've done, I think it's, it's interesting because since the outbreak of the war, you've been kind of gamely trying to show that the debate within China over how Beijing should respond, the position that China should ultimately take uh, with respect to the war, that that debate has not yet been entirely shut down. And you've kept this going even after the website was blocked, after you you got a lot of pushback about publishing his piece. Now, to be clear, I definitely share your view. I I have talked to uh, multiple Chinese diplomats and academics, and the discourse, I would say, is not as closed as some people might uh, have, have been trying to lead us to believe. Like you, I have pushed back against the idea that in China there is no level of support for Russia that is too high, and no expression of sympathy for Ukraine is allowed. That's, that's, that's just really not the case. A recent example of this, I mean, while we're on the subject, I think it's maybe important that we bring this up. You you tweeted about uh, a, a couple of essays. One of them was a pro-Russian essay by a guy named Lin Zhibor, which was actually censored for being too stridently pro-Russian. And then there was a response by a guy named Cheng Mo, which I assume is is probably a pen name, uh, which wasn't censored, if I'm not mistaken. Can you talk about these two posts really quickly and give us your sense of maybe where you think that currently uh, the allowable discourse, online at least, about Ukraine is in China?
2: I think in the early days uh, of the war, uh, the censorship is such that uh, you can only uh, read or hear pro-Russia uh, opinions. I think uh, probably by the time we publish Huwei, and probably after that, uh, the criticism of Russia, the criticism of uh, China's uh, uh, all right uh, pro-Russia position is being debated. That voice uh, is, is allowed. So Lin jiu mm. uh, as you mentioned, is a real person. You know, he actually... Uh, is a reporter for the people's daily he's uh, mm-hmm, i don't mm-hmm. know if he's still running you know sort of the the office the people's daily office in in Sichuan so he's a uh, diatribe uh, you know so critical of the us so critical of the west and and make makes the argument that china and russia is the most progressive force in the world and in this uh, eventual showdown uh, with the West, uh, led by the United States, you know, China uh, is going to be China and Russia, and the, the progressive forces represented by them uh, will be on the winning side. So it really correlates with the so-called time and momentum are on our side. You know, the the rise of of the East and the decline of the West. But I guess you know that claim is so ardent, and and talking about how Russia's war against uh, Ukraine is so just that. Uh, eventually uh, you know they're going to win maybe it's too far uh, for yeah. for the government to be associated with that position and, and given the fact that he himself works for uh, a media outlet so that's why so I was searching for it most of the mainstream websites particularly where it was first published or you know, Wang, operated uh-huh. uh, by by the you know the fudan group the, the China Institute group, you know, Zhang Weiwei and Eric Lee. It was gone from there. It was gone from uh, the Huang website, but eventually I found it on one of the most leftist website called the, the Red Song website. It's, it's still there. I don't <laughs> know why it was able to be left alone there. And uh, the other article, that I, I agree with you, Mo is probably, uh, we don't know his uh, true uh, identity. You know, uh, Lin Zhibo, basically his article is long. It's divided into 18 sections. Uh, But uh, Cheng Mo's uh, article is not a direct response uh, to uh, the article we talked about. He actually tried to answer 32 questions related to the war in Ukraine, but he doesn't want to talk about the relationship between China and the war. And what's most amazing uh, about this article is the disinformation uh, that being uh, widely uh, distributed in China. For example, that uh, President Zelensky, he looks very energetic, but he's actually supported by drugs. Uh, that, uh, you know, the, the destruction of the Russian cruise missile, you know, is actually, it was a fire, you know, it was not destroyed. Uh, Right, Uh,
1: the the Moskva, the missile cruiser, right? I I think
2: there's a lot of those kind of informations that are popular in China. He tried to debunk them all, but he doesn't want to get into the position to say that the Chinese government position uh, is is not a sustainable position.
1: I see, I see. So he doesn't go after directly Beijing's stated policy. He doesn't go after directly... Uh, he just goes after a lot of the misinformation that's out there circulating. I, I think one thing
2: he does go against uh, the other article is uh, that the the Russians' uh, slow uh, pace of occupying mm-hmm. Ukraine has a lot to do with their care for the life of the civilians. And and he's, <laughs> he says no, that's not the case. If you uh, care to look at what happened in Bukha and what happened in Mariupol. Uh, you, you're you not going to say anything like that. So he he That's is right. a, against uh on that front.
1: Okay. All right. So that was a, an interesting side, side, side but let's get back into the actual survey data that you guys did. So before we dig into the results commissioned actually by the Carter Center, Danielle, perhaps you could remind listeners who don't remember or who didn't hear our show with, with Yahweh and his colleague Michael from November, um, remind us how Riwi conducts its surveys and how that addresses some of the problems that we ordinarily encounter when we're trying to do survey research in countries like China in particular.
0: Absolutely, so Yahweh has already pointed out some of the issues involved with, you know, for example, getting data from social media, Uh, you know, got big data there, uh, but a lot of that can be censored and you're hearing really from the most most vocal uh, people. And there's obviously, you know, social desirability bias to express views in a certain way. Mm. We know that, you know, email, another, you know, another way that you typically get data would be through a, a typical panel where you have, you know, people who are incentivized to a, a kind of a narrow group of people that are, are paid and uh, habitual survey takers. And what we're doing at Rewe is we're trying to address biases, minimize the biases associated with some of those conventional approaches. And the way that we do that is by using a technology called random domain intercept technology. Mm. And it's sort of like, I don't know, for those of you who remember who are listening, that remember landlines where people would, you know, randomly look at pick a number out of the phone book and and call uh, this called random digit dialing. It's the analog for the internet. So we're basically, you know, randomly intercepting people online. And the way we do that is we have hundreds and thousands of um, parked but inactive web domains that are kind mm-hmm. of rotating at any one time, and they might, you know, you might come across an error message if you're surfing the web. And if we happen to occupy one of those web domains at that time, then you would be, uh, you would be exposed to a survey. And by doing that in this kind of in this randomized fashion, where anybody who is who is online. Uh, in in has the potential of receiving one of these surveys, and therefore we're getting access to people that are non typically survey uh, non typical survey takers. So in China, when we survey our respondents, we know that sixty percent of them sixty percent of them tell us they've never taken a survey before. Hmm. You know, more than eighty percent haven't taken one in the past month. It's really people that are from all parts of the country, not just tier one and tier two cities, tier three, tier four, rural. If you have a smartphone, we can access you any device. You know, smartphone, desktop, tablet. Sometimes even people respond on Teslas, and so that way we're really accessing people that are are not typical survey takers. And the other feature that's really important about the way we uh, we gather data in China, and I should just also mention, we're in every country of the world except for North Korea. So we're you know we 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 work in places where it's difficult to get more reliable information, right? And when there's restricted information environments, and one really key feature of the technology and the approach is that. Again, with conventional uh, survey methodologies, if you're incentivizing someone, you need to get their contact information. You need to somehow be able to give them that incentive. We don't want to collect any personally identifiable information because we want to get, we want to have people, uh, we want to minimize the chance that people will lie (laughs) and maximize the chance that they're going to be honest. And so we don't collect any personally identifiable information. So it's really, truly anonymous.
1: Yeah. Are you willing to share maybe some examples that you could cite where Riwi's approach yielded maybe a better sense of public opinion than more traditional polling methods did. I can think of a couple of, of, of times where we've been pretty badly led astray by by polling data, right? <laughs> yeah,
0: absolutely. I mean the, the most obvious examples um, so you know Rewe's done all kinds of things from pan- the original application was for pandemic monitoring during a different uh, different pandemic
2: uh-huh.
0: uh, but it's been applied to all sorts of global events. And the main ones that sort of come up as places where conventional polls did not do the trick, they led us astray. So, you know, one example is the Brexit vote. And in that case, the conventional polls basically anticipated that more people would come out and vote. But vote against Brexit. But what they didn't do is they didn't speak to all the disengaged young people <laughs> who didn't plan to come out and vote. And so when we use the Riwi methodology, in fact, you know, we had and we had a bunch of academics who were looking into this before the Brexit vote. And they said, look, you know, these young people cannot be counted on to come vote. Uh, you got to speak to these young people. You're not the conventional polls are not ac- accessing those people. And then the other big example, of course, is what was, you know, supposedly a surprise election win for President Trump in 2016. Uh, but the RUI technology was able to tap into those those uh, Trump voters and able to say, look, we actually call a Trump election in 2016. And similarly, in 2020, the methodology actually said that, you know, this is going to be a much closer elections than the polls predicted. And actually, in the French election, we also <laughs> were also able to get data that was much closer to the uh, to the actual result than conventional polls did. So th- we've got a lot of examples of where this has worked to be able to access people who are not typically sharing their opinion. And we're doing it in all kinds of conflict zones, all kinds of places all around the world.
1: So you guys have all these domains that people hit, um, you're you're parked on and people hit them. And instead of the usual error message, they are asked to take a quick survey, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Do do you know whether some of the URLs that you have are URLs that are say blocked in China or are maybe, are, are you perhaps able to get sites that you know to be blocked in China and somehow redirect inbound traffic uh, from Chinese IP addresses to those surveys.
0: Yeah, the good—that's a good question. So the kinds of web domains that we are we are using that we are occupying for you know could be fraction could be a very short period of time. They are the ones that are inactive. So oh, okay. you know, in the U.S., like Facebook.com, you know, that's an active domain. We would not be um using that domain of course we are using inactive domains so uh, you know website it's blocked in china we're not using that domain but we may be using other domains that you know if people um whatever they're searching for if they come across an error message then we would be we potentially be occupying that domain and we all we, we rotate these domains so that they're really representative of the web using population and so that each day we're capturing a new random cohort of the population that gives us confidence if they tell us the same thing, you know, day after day that we're getting something reliable.
1: Fantastic. So I guess let's let's take a look now at the findings from the Carter Center's Commission questionnaire. Uh, you guys set out to look at levels of support for Russia and uh, opinions about China's best course of action. That was another one. And that was really an interesting one because you gave one set of questions that asked that that gave them the option. Uh, China steps in as some kind of a mediator and the other that didn't give them that option that was just was sort of various ways in which to support or not. And then uh, the third question really was about uh, this disinformation piece. What were the specific questions that you asked respondents, uh, and what was the general distribution of answers?
2: So basically the first question is uh, whether China's support for Russia is in China's interest. Uh, mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. think I'm uh, quite surprised uh, by by the outcome, because before the survey I was thinking You know, uh, if you're watching, you know, both the state and social media news, if you care about where China is today, and if you think about, you know, where China is going to go after they are so uh, steadfast uh, in their support of Russia, you know, what is going to happen to China? So I was hoping that, you know, at least the probably will be a divided uh, kind of opinion, but it's uh, it's largely one-sided, so
1: 75%.
2: Of those that are polled, uh, th- believes that China's support for Russia is in China's interest. So, on the second uh, question, uh, in terms of the best course of uh, action, you you mentioned you know it's actually a divided question. So, the first part uh, is we don't have the uh, option of uh, China play a role of mediation. So, on that is sixty one percent of those that are polled basically say. Uh, China should uh, offer moral support. So those who uh, believe that China should provide military support, that percentage is is very low. And then uh, yeah, once yeah. we introduce the option of China playing a mediation role, then 58% of those polled basically said China should play a role of mediation. I think the answers to these two questions uh, at least tells us that, uh, you know, the Chinese... Those that are polled, you know, they are clear-eyed uh, about what this support is all about. It's more about moral support. Uh, it will be stupidity uh, for China to, to uh, get militarily engaged. And of course, they probably don't know much about how China is being warned uh, by Biden and by the European leaders that, you know, if any material support you offer that can be interpreted as sustaining the war effort, then you're going to face... Consequences. So I'm I'm comforted by by this finding. And finally, on on the biolab, the conspiracy theory. If you ask them, have you seen this? Uh, Those who have seen this, I think, seventy two percent believe uh, these accusations are real. That Americans are operating biolabs. COVID nineteen probably uh, originated from there. And for those who have not read anything about this, uh, as high as fifty one percent of those polls believe that this is true.
1: Oh, God, Christ. I mean, for anyone who hasn't followed this, so Chinese state media and even some foreign ministry spokespeople have pushed this idea that Russian troops in Ukraine discovered supposedly American-funded or even American-operated biological labs and have suggested that they were actually working on bioweapons. Uh, it strikes me that this particular claim out of Moscow uh, was repeated and found resonance in China for one central reason, and that is that you know Beijing and the Chinese public more broadly is still really, really resentful over the so-called lab leak theory of COVID origins, um, and the you know the conflation, the kind of deliberate conflation of that with bioweapons. and they're smarting from that, and it feels a little vindictive. Uh, it also – I mean if I were maybe conspiratorially minded about the origins of conspiracy theories, I would even think that maybe this was tailor-made for Chinese consumption. Like if I were in Moscow and I wanted to, to get Chinese people um, all riled up against the United States with a conspiracy theory, I would create one about bioweapons labs in Ukraine. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, what did you f- feel about that? What was your sense about this? And and what what's really striking, Yahweh, is you said, was that the higher level of education – people had, the more apt they seem to be to believe this disinformation, which seems completely contradictory to what you and me might, might have suspected beforehand.
2: Yes, I think there there seems to be a correlation that the higher the level of the education, uh, the more likely they believe in the conspiracy theories, uh, the more uh, likely they think supporting Russia is in China's national interest, which, you know, yeah. is, is, and also I think the consumption of both state and social media, uh, so this may be a indication is how uh, social media uh, has been synchronized to the state media outlet. You know, on the on the conspiracy theory, I want to add. I think uh, early on, even uh, right after the SARS outbreak, you know, there are Chinese IR scholars. You know, particularly uh, the retired senior colonel Dai Xu. Uh, basically, yeah, yeah. made the claim that SARS was a biological uh, warfare against China launched by the United States. Uh, you know, at the time, there, uh, there are reporters who ask, you know, can you provide the evidence? They said, I had, uh, I have evidence, but I'm not going to share this with you. And and more recently, I think other uh, sort of RI scholar, think tank researchers claim, you know, what happened in Hong Kong is orchestrated by the U.S. And then what happened right. in Shanghai is orchestrated by the U.S. And you know the goal, of course, is to use a pandemic and uh, China's approach to this, you know, to weaken China's economy. So this, this, I, I, I think from the top all the way to the elite, and then to the people that uh, we have polled, there is this tendency to believe, in general, that the uh, U.S. has this goal, not only just to Contain China, but to make China disintegrate, just like what happened to the Soviet Union. So I, right. I think the finding here is consistent with with this kind of conspiracy uh, environment. You know, when you hear China, uh, you know, the Chinese government, foreign ministry spokesperson, accuse Americans instigating uh, the protest in Hong Kong. You know, uh, you, you know, th- this this is basically this. Anything critical of the government, anything critical of the government policies, you know, they are not from our people because our people right. being misled, our people being instigated, as if you know, Chinese people themselves have no agency at all agency, on right. these issues. It's the standard right.
1: authoritarian victim narrative yep. going on here. Yeah. So Danielle, in these surveys, uh, it's clear that you have some demographic data on them, uh, probably gender, age, education level. It's also clear you get some kind of sense of their level of exposure to state media social media these sorts of is this all just self reported or do you have other means by which you can gather the this demographic stuff?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. So as soon as somebody clicks on as soon as somebody's exposed to the survey and decides to click uh, and start to answer the survey, uh we auto detect their location right um and we also we also know what device they're responding on um their operating system, et cetera so like you know, if they, they tell us they're not going to, they're never going to buy an Apple iPhone, you know, an iPhone again, but they're responding on an iPhone, we would have that information, which was useful during, you know, parts of the, the China-US trade war. We also, though, then asked them for self um uh, self-reported information, age, gender, uh, and then various other demographic information, income, education. Um, and then we can test, you know, we don't, it depends what the study is, but uh, we can test their level of exposure to state media. And as, you know, as as yeah, we talked about in this study, their exposure to certain kinds of uh, myths or disinformation.
1: Uh uh-huh. But you don't get stuff like their browser history or anything oh, like that? Uh, not
0: their browser history, but we can tell. We do have a lot of uh, kind of machine data on, on what they're doing. But what we don't have is there, uh, anything that personally identifies them. And so we can't go back to the same person again and ask them the same question because of our yeah. anonymity. But we do get quite a bit of machine data and we definitely know where they are. Like, you know, are they in Shanghai under lockdown right now? Like, we would know that somebody is answering us from Shanghai.
1: Danielle, staying with you for a bit. Let's let's talk about this military conflict risk index, and and especially about the China Taiwan pairing. First of all, um, I like I said, there are a couple of other studies that I wanted to talk about here, and you had done them uh, for another client, and and presumably you're talking about this with with his permission. Can you talk a little bit about who that was at Bank of America, I believe, right?
0: Sure. Yeah. Actually, it's a it's a it's a suite of kind of data feeds that we're creating that are subscri- available for subscriptions. So we're doing them together with David Wu. David uh-huh. Wu is a former macro strategist at the Bank of America. And the idea was that, you know, geopolitical risk is, you know, the number is is, sure. is, is big right now. We started putting this together before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but really uh, the idea that, you know, there isn't a lot of good real-time information on what is happening in terms of the, the you know, major conflicts um, China, Taiwan, Russia, Ukraine, Iran, Israel, you know, India, Pakistan, and we wanted to have um, some real-time intelligence from citizens as kind of an alternative source of information to really get, you know, citizens are closest to the activity on the ground, they are hearing the information from their leaders, um, and they know, you know, whether there's, their things are happening, whether they're required to, you know, report for military duty and so on. And so the idea was to hear from the broadest array of citizens possible. In real time, in both of these conflict zones, to be able to, in in both of the pair, the, both the countries of the pairing, to be able to see, okay, is the risk of, of escalation, you know, is there an a, increased risk of escalation in this conflict, uh, or th- are things de-escalating? And so, you know, well, we we heard from the Ukrainians and Russians in the, you know, the week before the invasion, yes things are happening and, uh, and, and we're hearing the same thing we actually didn't hear that over the course of March things were Ukrainians and Russians thought things were actually going to stay stable but now we're seeing you know since the beginning of April that they are saying things are going to intensify mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. yeah so it's really uh, it, it's an alternative source of information on what's happening on the ground in these conflicts basically.
1: So focusing, of course, as we would for this show, on the China-Taiwan pairing, it's a shame that people can't see right in front of them right now the graph of the seven-day moving average that you did. Maybe with your permission, I could put that in the show notes. That would be great.
0: Sure. Yeah.
1: But basically, you asked people in Taiwan and on the Chinese mainland whether they thought military tensions across the Taiwan Strait would likely increase or Mm -hmm. decrease in the coming weeks. And they answered on a five-point scale, which you graphed from negative two to two. Uh, and what's fascinating to me, though, and I think probably to anyone looking at this, is that they track so closely. I mean, Taiwan Absolutely. remains consistently above the PRC on this question, yeah. but it, it 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 tracks together. I mean, they put the likelihood at high a higher level, but it it rises and falls with what people answer on the mainland in very very tight sync. What does that mean? What do we can we infer from that?
0: Well first of all um you you also the, the the it's also notable that there is you know a lot i think in the public discourse there's some concern that there could be an escalation of this conflict and according to chinese and taiwanese um citizens we're actually seeing that you know they think things they think the risk of things escalating has actually decreased since the the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and they're and quite, thinking, quite substantially, yeah, and quite yes. And so I think that's the first kind of takeaway. And then the second, like you pointed out, is this, you know, that they're they're basically kind of responding to the same narrative, the same set of narratives that are out there about these this conflict. So you know, it looks to me like the it, it, you're right. It like they almost track <laughs> when anything, you know when anything happens, you can see that it's going. Uh, that this is happening in parallel. And because we're doing this every day, repeating the same question every day to a new random cohort, and you can, it's really remarkable um, how much they're aligned.
1: Another question that you asked uh, in the work that you did with David Wu uh, was about the likely impact that the conflict was going to have uh, and whether that's more economic in nature or political in nature. That is, will it affect the economy, economic, relative economic power of the the question the country in question or will it affect the political system. And I thought it was really interesting too.
0: Yeah, we were at, we were basically trying to ask, you know, what's at stake in this crisis, right. and not in the crisis, in this broader geopolitical conflict between, you know, Russia and China and its and their allies and and, and the US, Europe and its allies. And we gave people a, a range of options and The you know 36 percent of Chinese, 36 percent of Russians, and 37 percent of Americans think that what's most at stake in the global this global power struggle is the prospect for economic power for their country. And the least selected option was that political systems were at stake. And this is just it's just it's very interesting also because you know it's sort of this new um, you know what some people are calling the new Cold War it's really about economics. It's not, you know, the world is just much more tightly integrated now. And it's, it's a different set of issues. I mean, not, not completely different, but really uh, everybody, every citizens in all these countries recognize that what's really at stake is the economic uh, success of their countries. And on what, on the one hand, you could find this kind of disconcerting because, you know, economics is not supposed to be a zero sum, sum game, <laughs> um, right? Like if we've learned anything from, from economic, history and theory and so on it is that uh you know all we all we all benefit um uh trading you know right and so um uh, you know but 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 that's kind of the the finding that we get and i think you said that you didn't you didn't think it was that surprising kaiser
1: no i i I don't think it's surprising um partially I'm, i'm glad that this outcome yes i am concerned they didn't learn about the edgeworth box in econ 101 as well as they should have maybe (laughs) and how all trade is supposed to be mutually beneficial. But what does sort of maybe give me some heart is that they're not swallowing this narrative that people are pushing in Beijing and in in Washington, that this is a primarily ideological struggle, uh, that this isn't autocracy versus democracy necessarily, that there's... I mean, if I had to hazard a guess as to why people in China would reject that narrative, is that I think a lot of people in China simply don't believe that China intends, even if it wins this, as it were, to push its political system onto anybody, I mean. And and those who do think that political systems are at stake here are answering that question maybe defensively because, you know, it doesn't specify whether it thinks that, you know, political change will come to them. It, It could also be to us, right? And they do believe that the U.S. wants to foist its political system onto China. Russians probably feel the same way. And Americans are, you know, they're still locked into this idea that, Economic power automatically brings about systemic political change. So, I and mean, that would be my my kind of <laughs> stab at a uh, like ten second theory of it. But anyway, it, it fascinating results. Yahweh, uh, I imagine that many people would be surprised by the results that uh, you have that show this whole higher education being correlated with higher support for Russia. Uh, I mean, it's it's really hard for me still. I mean, I know you you've offered a little bit of an explanation, but Why is it so hard for me to shake this longstanding belief that China's educated urbanites are somehow more cosmopolitan and therefore more, you know, maybe Western leaning than the rest of society? Is it time to retire that idea?
2: No, I I don't think it's time to retire that idea. I I think this uh, correlation, the higher level of education, the more likelihood they believe, you know, in conspiracy theories or believe that uh, China's support for Russia uh, the war in Ukraine is in uh, China's uh, national interest. I think, uh, as I uh, try to explain uh, earlier, so there are multiple uh, factors here. Number one, of course, is uh, what I said is the monopoly of of the both the state and social media, you know, by the yeah. propaganda yeah. apparatus. Uh, number number two uh, is, uh, you know, I, I I think this is a true reflection. You know, it's it's kind of uh, uh, you, we can take into consideration, uh, Daniels, uh talked about the findings of, you know, th- this U.S.-China uh, competition or rivalry is not about ideology, it's really about containing uh, China. Uh, so I, I, I think I've mentioned this uh, in other places, is I, I think there is this uh, October revolution moment in China, the China's elite. More and more of them uh, start to believe that uh, us now is hostile to China. What U.S. is trying right. to do has nothing to do with ideology or human rights or anything like that. You know, it's more about uh, to make China uh, to paralyze China's economic growth. You know, to deny China uh, the crown jewel of uh, innovation and technologies, and, and to basically make China disintegrate. You know, the the ramification of this is going to be serious. If we go back uh, to a hundred years before. Uh, when uh, President Woodrow Wilson failed to deliver uh, Jiaodong Peninsula to China after uh, Germany was defeated. That caused uh, widespread disillusionment and disappointment uh, in President Woodrow Wilson in Western liberal democracy. At the same time, uh, Moscow issued the declaration saying they're going to return all the territory seized from the Qing court to China. So that uh, created a pivot. Uh, in China, right. which was before, they think uh, liberal democracy, just like what Japan was able to do, is use uh, Western institutions, you know, to uh, strengthen your country. So at that point, you know, they made a sharp uh, turnaround. and and uh, many like uh, Mao and and other founding members of the party to believe that uh, the the Soviet. Way is is the best way for China. So th- this is what I'm concerned most now. Is U.S. best asset uh, in this competition with China is what you mentioned, the the you know the the elite positive perception of the U.S. is now going through a sea change, and once
1: so here we are yeah, in 1919 again, right? Ex- exactly, uh, the eve of the May Fourth Movement, and uh, you think that this. Profound disillusionment uh, that 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 the liberal intelligentsia. I mean, everybody. I mean, these guys like Chen Duxio and Li Dajiang were all, you know, committed liberals. They were not, you know, so enamored with Marxism yet. But uh, this this was a pivotal moment. Right. That's I, a, a I I I profoundly think profoundly know, interesting the, argument.
2: One of the popular uh, tweets uh, by Liu Xin, you know, the anchor woman for CGTN, mm-hmm. You know, her tweet is that you know you want us. Uh, to destroy our friend and then you turn around to destroy us. I think that right. that's a reflection of not a majority, but I think a significant portion of the people, you know, particularly in the international relations communities that they, they think because US is, is such that, you know, we have to hedge, we have to have a friend. You know, what if we're not going to have any friend around when US uh, starts real decoupling with China?
1: So Yahweh and Danielle, I'm not sure who's best suited to answer this, but where did you find pockets of opposition to the war? I mean, are there demographics identifiable segments of Chinese society where opposition to uh, the war, or or a desire for China to to uh, stay out of it completely, or to even side with NATO and the United States with Ukraine, was that found to be slightly higher? Is there such a a Place in the demography of china right now.
2: i I don't know if Danielle has a better uh interpretation of that I think statistically if you look at it, because the percentage is is small it it's hard uh to identify but uh, anecdotally i I think there there is this uh big divide uh between the popular view how the public views the war and how Uh, international relations scholars see the war. So anecdotally, I was told, you know, in the uh, international relations scholar community, uh, more than 50%, probably as high as 65% uh, of the scholars agree with Hui's view. So if, if, if that's the case, then, you know, that's a sharp contrast that at the elite level, you know, people seem to have more comprehensive understanding of what China's support for Russia means, whereas yeah. uh, at the lower level, uh, they they don't seem to be able to, to have uh, accurate answers to, to that question. Or, you know, how, how do you calculate uh, cost and, and decision making?
1: Yeah, it's it's pretty tough. I mean, in this study, it was like N equals 4,800 something. This is not a small study, but I'm sure you weren't able to get so groundingly that you could say, ah, this person has a PhD in political science or, or... Danielle, you were going to say?
0: So I was going to say that we had, we asked in my country, you know, people view the, the Russia-China relationship. And one thing we, we observed is that um, the Chinese were less likely to actually say that it was an allied relationship than the Russians were. Mm. Uh, and so I think that's also an important kind of indicator, uh, which is kind of complementary, perhaps to to the sort of the, you know, some of the things that that uh, that Yao found in, in the Carter Center study. Yeah, I, I think that that's, and we also found that um, in the US-China relationship, you know, again, it's not as adversarial as you might think uh, when you ask, regular people from across both countries uh but young people again were sort of young people were more open to the idea of a of a coexisting kind of relationship rather than a more adversarial one so that i find a little bit optimistic
1: that's encouraging i mean i'm i'm curious because you know your your survey results show that more americans view the u.s relationship with russia as one of adversaries or enemies than view the relationship with china as such yeah. I wonder what, what, whether that what that was like before February 24th. I wonder if the things have, if the war has really changed that. Because I mean, if you go back, I, I looked at the Pew Global Attitudes, uh, which is you know sort of the the standard benchmark, and uh, they only have data to 2020. But in 2020, China had a much higher unfavorability score than than Russia did among Americans. Uh, the terms are not the same, of course, but I do think this is significant. Does Riwi have data from before February 24th on this Cold War two thing?
0: Unfortunately, on this particular question, oh, actually, sorry, we we might, I might be able to dig some out for you. (laughs) That'd be great, Uh, but I don't have the answer off the top of my head because we did when when Russia invaded Ukraine, we pivoted, and in fact, we were actually going to do a. China-U.S. index, and then we pivoted to, to a Cold War II index. Yeah. Uh, so I do have some historical data. I don't have it up off the top of my head, but you know, yeah. So I, I can look that up and and give you an answer.
2: <laughs> I'm very encouraged uh, by the finding uh, of how uh, small the percentage of the Russians, and even smaller percentage of the Chinese, see the other side as an ally. You know, that that's a great comfort because I was so disappointed that seventy-five percent uh, of the Chinese polled, you know, they support China's position because it's in China's interest. And then you look at the finding uh, from Rui, you know, twenty-eight percent Chinese see Russia as an ally, thirty-six percent Russians see China as an ally. That's that's a very small percentage. That's almost like the same percentage that is saying China's Support for Russia is uh, uh, not in China's uh, interest. That's twenty five percent. So th- I, I say this is. Uh, I'm very encouraged by this. Is I think the Chinese people. You know, there there is a saying that you know people have twenty twenty vision. They know exactly what this relationship is all about. There is no sentimental. There is no emotional attachment between the Russians and the Chinese. Most of the Chinese know all the bad things. Tsar regime had done to China. Most of the Chinese, you know, the older generation that Daniel referred to, they understood how disastrous when China adopted the Russian economic, uh, you know, uh, mode, when China adopted the, how the party is going to be supreme. And so I, I, I think, you know, if we look at where Chinese public opinion is by combining these two data set is I think the Chinese believe that supporting Russia is in the interest of China, not because they like Russia's war, not because they like Russia as a country, they like Russian as a people, but because the US is is so hostile to China. And in this kind of macro environment, it's better to retain Russia as a friend so that you're not going to end up fighting the U.S. alone.
1: Yahweh, I think that's exactly right. And it reminds me of something that Sidney Rittenberg, the late Sidney Rittenberg, said to me a few years ago. Uh, we were talking to him at his home, uh, his his winter home in in Phoenix, Arizona. And he said that there's really no love lost between Chinese people and Russian people. They They, they don't have a natural affinity. Chinese certainly don't have a natural affinity to Russians. Uh, nor do they have a natural love for, for uh, the British, but they do have a natural love for Americans. And uh, I've always found that to be the case that there's sort of there, there's so much that that unites them. there's so so many things about their their personalities for good and for bad that are the same. Danielle, I want to talk about last, maybe the last thing before we move on. Uh, some of the findings that, that show a lot of Russian confidence and appear to show strong you know, solidarity uh, within Russia. Uh, There's this result that shows 80% of Russians believe that their side actually has the upper hand over Ukraine, which oddly might be actually more realistic um, than the 73% of Americans who are convinced that our side, Ukraine, has the upper hand. I mean, look, Ukraine has had a very impressive showing thus far for sure, but still, right, you look at the the military might of the Russians, it's not over yet, and I, I, I worry about the hubris. Anyway, then there's the 42% of Russian respondents, which is much higher than for China or the United States, that agreed with this idea that they should support their country even if they think it is wrong, which I thought was an interesting question to ask. Um, and it's 48% you
0: know, of Russians should wow. that, believe that people should support their country even if their country's actions and policies are in the wrong. Yeah.
1: Oh, my God. It's gone up six points. Now <laughs> yeah, 40, 48%, That that's shocking. Uh, that actually reminds me of, uh, in 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 years ago, my band was in a contract negotiation, and I was the the dissenting voice. I said, you know, no, we're we're going to ruin this deal. Why should we? And one of my bandmates said something like, if we're all going to be well, there's a vulgar phrase that that can the, the where the noun is can be the most awesome and like a stupid ass. I said, if we're all going to be uh, awesome, let's be awesome together. If we're all going to be dumb asses, let's be dumb asses together. I said, actually, can I say, I don't want to be a dumb ass with you guys. <laughs> and I got, you know, was practically kicked out for for right. saying that, but whatever. yeah, but yeah, yeah, that, that that's, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that the number is much smaller for China.
0: <laughs> yeah. And we're going to be we're the The thing that we're going to be doing is, um, is tracking these questions like we're, can we continue to ask them on a daily basis oh, okay. uh, to kind of understand whether, you know, is this going to change? Are the Russians at some point going to not believe that they have the upper, upper hand? Uh, you know, are the Americans going to start to feel like they, you know, are like so what, what is actually because um, it's, it's shocking to I think probably most Americans that 80 percent of Russians think they have the upper hand, given right. the media, right. uh, given the media narrative that, you know, Russia is really struggling
1: yeah yeah i worry about that media narrative though i really do i worry i mean it's uh impressively powerful certainly i mean the discursive power of the western media has been on ample display throughout this whole thing uh and yeah. certainly you know i mean zelensky has been heroic a lot of stuff it's been pretty great but yeah all right final thoughts anybody before we move on uh uh, uh, what's what's next? Yahweh? do you have more research planned? I'm really curious to uh you know I'm just not not just for scheduling a show for the next time I have you on, but just No,
2: our our, our plan with Riwi is uh we're going to start this uh, regularized uh poll of uh Chinese perception of US US China relations and uh how uh they see their uh image uh internationally. So because last uh, November when we talked about it, it's a pilot. We only asked two questions, so it's going to be a more uh, comprehensive one. So we'll do one uh, later this year, and and then probably another one uh, early next year, so that we'll be you'll have we'll have more uh, data, more questions will be asked. I think now we have we're we're just drafting the question. There there are thirteen questions uh, in addition uh, to the to the gender, income, location data. So we probably will launch this uh, wave uh, uh, later in the summer or in, in the early fall. So we're working with Riwi and other uh, sponsors, including Committee of 100 and Oxford University China Center, that we're going to do this uh, survey. And, and we want to regularize it so that just like Danielle's, uh constant, you know, this index, right? So you have try to catch if there are any changes and how to interpret uh, these changes
0: over time.
1: I'm delighted to hear that. Um, I'm really, really keen to see the results start rolling out from that. Oh, fantastic.
0: Yeah. Maybe I'll also, I'll also add that. uh, So in addition to the work that, uh, that Yahweh and the Carter center are going to do with Riwi that on these regularized opinion polls of, China, U.S. perceptions. Um, so we're also continuing to gather data on the two other indexes I talked about. One is this Cold War II Index in Russia, China, and the U.S. perceptions of each other, but also uh, includes economic, real-time economic data. Mm. So, uh, for example, you know we now we know that in um, in China, you know first quarter first quarter GDP uh, came out very positive looking, but um, you know it's kind of a rear view mirror when you have omicron and all these lockdowns and so really? on and so we're trying to capture in real time you know what is consumer spending look like and we've got that data now for you know april <laughs> um wow. and we're trying to capture yeah inflation expect like all kinds of data that are related to you know basic economic conditions in china also in russia and the us as well simultaneously and then we also have these continuing gathering of data in these military in these conflicts the conflict between China and Taiwan and in, in particular might be interesting to your to your listeners so, Yeah, yeah
1: the the economic data in China too obviously that's uh yeah. fascinating stuff so let's 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 stay in touch on that fantastic yeah. Danielle Goldfarb Yahweh Liu thank you so much to both of you and and sorry to take up so much time on a weekend evening I'm sure you have better things to do but I look forward to having both of you back on the program together or separately but uh either way for sure uh, before I let you go, let's do some recommendations. But first, a quick reminder that if you like the work that we do with the Seneca Podcast, please help us out by subscribing to SubChina's China Access, our daily newsletter. Honestly, I just think it's the best one out there in English, and you'll find it highly readable, super informative. Uh, just go to subchina.com slash subscribe. All right, let's move on to recommendations. Yahweh, you go first. What do you have for us?
2: So I have uh, this book to recommend. I don't know if it was uh, recommended before by your other guests. So so this is a book by uh, Luke Pady uh, called How, oh, yeah, yeah, How yeah. China Loses, uh, the pushback uh, against uh, Chinese uh, global uh, ambitions. Uh, I I, th- I like this book because actually I'm teaching a Chinese foreign policy class. I asked my students to use this as one of the two textbooks. Uh, the other is uh, uh, China's Wolf Warriors. Uh, you know, by th- by the Bloomberg uh, reporter that you talked to before.
1: Right, Peter Martin. Right. Yeah.
2: So I I like this book because uh, yeah, I, I think his conclusion is the world cannot afford to see China lose. You know, if China loses, if China Goes back to what it was before, you know, in the initial thirty years after the founding of PRC, or if if China shut down again, or if China uh, becomes what we don't want to see, then it's not just uh, miserable for China; it's going to be disaster for the whole world. But then, uh, at the same time, he makes the argument that where China is going now certainly uh, is is a threat to the international order, to the rule-based. Uh, you know, environment that all countries uh, should hold China accountable and not to be coerced uh, by China's uh, economic and, and other sanctions. And, and so, what he's saying is, uh, let's not try to make regime change, but try to push or persuade or convince China there is a better way. Uh, you know, for you to uh, have your domestic uh, as well as your foreign policies. So that's why I recommend this book.
1: Yeah, I I read Luke's uh, piece, an excerpt, I think it was from from the book, uh, in The Wire, China. And I I had the the pleasure of reading it out loud when we were working with them on the China Stories podcast. So I I think he's a fantastic writer. Um, I'm looking forward to reading it. Great recommendation. Thanks, Yahweh. Luke Patey, How China Loses. Okay, Danielle, what do you got for us?
0: So, I'm going to recommend a book um, called Invisible Women, came out a Mm -hmm. couple years ago. Uh, Have you read it? No, no, no. (laughs) Okay. I it's by Caroline Criado Perez and you know I'm I'm really focused fixated on kind of this question of you know there's a big emphasis on kind of big data and and machine learning to kind of extract the best um from machine from from big data mm-hmm. um and less of an emphasis on kind of making sure that the data that's underlying that's going into the models is actually reflecting reality and therefore what's coming out is going to give us you know better information and better decisions and uh, what I really like about her book, and I, I recommend it to everybody. And so so far, whenever I speak about it in a room, um, all the women put their hands up that they've read it. <laughs> and I want to encourage uh, not just women to read it, uh, everybody to read it, um, because really, it actually like shocked me uh, about the 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 fact that you know many of these algorithms are based on data that does not include women uh and yet you know everything from like you know where do we uh everything from sort of how do we uh which which sidewalks do we shovel first uh because of women's transportation patterns to um you know the way that airbags are designed and so on um and so it just it's it was it was shocking shocking and eye-opening to me as somebody who Spends her time spending, you know, thinking about data and data bias and inclusive data and so on. And so um, I wanted to encourage uh, other people to read it because I really enjoyed it.
1: Invisible Women, by you said Carolina Criado Perez, is that right? Yes, exactly. Okay, fantastic. Thanks. Um, and I will, I will read it. I try to make a good. point of reading everything that gets recommended. I'm That's still good. making my way slowly through it all, but uh, <laughs> I try, I try my best. So I would like to recommend the book, Tokyo Vice, which I started reading right after I started uh I started it right after I talked to my colleague, uh, Chang Che, who had recommended it on this show. He had recommended the the TV show, the HBO Max series of the same name. Uh, the book is the memoir of this remarkable guy named Jake Adelstein uh, who grew up in you know Columbia, Missouri. He's actually like a, a high school classmate or something of Pete Hessler. Uh, he, for many years, was a Yomiuri Shinbun reporter writing in Japanese covering metropolitan crime. And really going after the yakuza, uh, which is just astonishing. It's a riveting book. It's an, it's a great story. He actually does a not just a fine job of retelling, you know, capturing all the detail and stuff. But it's actually like just the right level of self-effacing. Um, it, it, it's not just like you know Bragadocio from the beginning. To the end. it's it's quite good. Um, and you should actually go back and read the New Yorker piece that was written about him by Pete Hessler back in, in I think it was like 2012 as uh the guy they got to play him on the h b o max series is I don't know if you've seen ansel elgar who who for my money, he's like the most handsome guy in the world right he's he played tony in the new Spielberg west side story right? he's really really just like physically just just magnetic right I mean, who wouldn't want to be played by this guy right uh, huge differences though between the h b o version of jake and the uh the physical Jake that's described in Pete's story, <laughs> it's, it's pretty funny. But the 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 HBO version of the story, it, it's different for sure. You know they 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 do a lot you know to to make it work as a TV show, but it doesn't feel fundamentally dishonest. So I I would second my colleague's recommendation of the show as well. It's it's quite good.
2: So read read right. the book or watch the the se- I started the watching book. the read. the series the
1: HBO series. I
2: watched like two episodes.
1: The book's great.
2: The book is better.
1: Uh yeah, well, I, I tend to like books better, but um yeah, but no, I mean they're, they're both fun. They're both it's it's kind of fun to compare and contrast to uh, cuz it's not the same story exactly. I mean there are, you know, details like, you know, the the exam, for example, that's that's Uh, detail that's kept in there pretty faithfully including the part about him forgetting or not recognizing it that it was a double-sided piece of paper and that there were a bunch of exam questions on the other side. All these details are left in but there's lots that isn't. Uh, A lot of the characters in the book you can see who they were supposed to be. They're conflations of a bunch of different uh, people from the book and they make it into the movie but in in really good ways and and things that will go kind of tragically horrifyingly bad um, if, if they stay faithful to it but it's really good really good anyway thank you so much danielle and Yah- yahweh it was what a pleasure to talk to you both on a friday night
0: <laughs> thank, you. thank you thank you have a good weekend all right have a great weekend
1: you too the Seneca podcast is powered by sub and is a proud part of the sinica network our show is produced and edited by me kaiser guo we would be delighted if you would drop us an email at sinica at dot or just give us a rating and a review on apple podcasts as this really does help people discover the show meanwhile Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at News, and be sure to check out all the shows in the Sinica Network. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care.